Welcome to Politicus, the only podcast that discusses politics and public service from the Portuguese-American perspective. Here we discuss everything from federal policy, local issues, and U.S.-Portugal relations with the goal of driving more discussion and awareness of the issues affecting our nation, our community, and what we as Portuguese-Americans can do about it. And now, Politicus. Hi, everybody out there. Um, we are live here with a very special guest, Jordan Thomas, who was our 2018 Promessa awardee. And he has accomplished so much that I'm not going to even try to capture it. I'm going to have him tell you. But first, I'm Angela Samoz. Nice to see everybody again out there in Facebook world. Uh, and we're here with Dinesh, my esteemed co-host. Yes, and uh, we are always happy to do these podcasts. This is the first for me as a Facebook Live on the podcast. Uh, I think we haven't done these live, but um, we always start out with, of course, thanking everyone as Angela did and saying that it is a pleasure for me. It's actually kind of an honor, a very esteemed honor to be here with Angela Simões, who is uh, the number one Portuguese-American <laughs> in the Portuguese-American universe. <laughs> Jordan, your Denise is full of flattery. It's kind of it's it's fun. It keeps <laughs> keeps always. us smiling. Not keeps us smiling. <laughs> you should ask some um, people if I'm flattering or not. <laughs> <laughs> so so Jordan, I, I remember when you received your award in 2018 at the gala. You know, being a mom myself, I could imagine how proud that your parents have been and are with everything that you've accomplished. So and it's that's tough to to. I mean, you've got like dual degrees and Ivy League. I mean, so talk about your path to how you got there and and what you're and then you know what you're doing now, kind of how that all kind of flows together. Absolutely. Well, first I just want to say, you know, hello everybody who's watching and, and thank you, Angela. Thank you, Denise, for having me. And thank you. You mentioned uh, the Young Portuguese American Promesso Award. And, you know, just thank you again for that honor. In 2018, I was, mm-hmm. uh, I keep, you know, sort of every so often I write these reflections on what's happened over the past month or past few weeks. Mm-hmm. And I was going back and reading my reflection on, on the award. Oh, and, cool. uh, yeah. and I was reminded that I had actually just flown to Oxford uh, to start my Rhodes mm-hmm. Scholarship the week prior. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the, the award was being given, I believe it was that Saturday, and I was already 3,600 miles away in England. But, you know, to your point, it just meant so much to me. It meant so much to my family, uh, particularly to my grandparents, right, who immigrated mm. to this country over, over 40 years ago and viewed this as a land of opportunity and as a new start uh, to, to win an award like that just meant so much that I, I remember mm. I actually flew all the way 3,600 miles back from England. Uh, to Washington D.C. because I wanted to receive that award in person, and then I made it back yeah. just in time for the start of classes Monday morning. You'd be proud to hear. Uh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but to answer your question, and you know, just sort of my my background. So so as I mentioned, uh, my grandparents on my mother's side are Portuguese. Uh, they are from a small town in northern Portugal, Mertosa, uh, which isn't too mm. far out from Aveiro. Mm-hmm. And my on my father's side, I am Black American. My parents were sort of both in Newark, New Jersey, because on the African-American side, um, just a very large Black and Latino population in Newark. And then on the Portuguese side, uh, you know, sort of fun fact about Newark is that it's actually the second largest community of Portuguese immigrants in the United States. So, really? Yeah. Didn't know that. And, 
the first largest is up in the New Bedford, uh, Massachusetts yes. area. Uh, but mm-hmm. then Newark and New York, we have our own little bustling community of Portuguese immigrants. So my grandparents mm-hmm. immigrated from Murtaza to Newark, New Jersey over 40 years ago now, brought my mother uh, when she was, I believe, only five years old um, and set up roots and then sort of thankfully met my dad along the lines. And, and here I was born. Um, but sort of my tale very much ever since birth has been one of of balancing and discovering both sides of those cultures and those heritages and being very proud of being an interracial sort of Black American, Portuguese American, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I grew up in this little, you know, three-story apartment in the East Ward of Newark, which is where the sort of Portuguese population is largely located. Uh, went to Catholic school for most of my upbringing. And then uh, just, you know, Portuguese culture, right? Quite quite a Catholic, very faithful religious culture. So I went to, to a largely Portuguese uh, Catholic school growing up. Um, and then it was for middle school and high school that I actually switched into uh, a public school. And hmm, it was actually okay. a largely African-American uh, school. So I went from being perhaps the only, I think, you know, sometimes depending on the year, maybe mm-hmm. one of two African-Americans in the Portuguese uh, Catholic school to then being, you know, in the school with 90, I think it's 98% uh, African-Americans. So, you know, I always talk about that switch um, as just being one where once again, I kind of had to reconcile in myself, like identity, Mm -hmm. right? And what does it mean that in many ways I felt at home in both groups, right? I didn't necessarily look Mm. like everybody else when I was in the mm-hmm. Portuguese uh, school, but I did fit in with them, right? We would speak in Portuguese and there was kind of a shared mm. culture and shared understanding. And I never felt, you know, I was never a, a victim of racist epithets or attacks or anything. Like I very much was welcomed in that community. Um, and then, right, and then very much fitting in when I switched to the African-American school largely, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so my life has always kind of been a balance of that. And I think that it's always been that sort of pride and culture and community that I've carried with myself. Um, but, but, you know, beyond sort of just always making me proud of who I was culturally, uh, one thing that my parents just did a phenomenal job of growing up was just encouraging me to just be the best version of myself in every facet and, and, you know, to apply myself academically, life wasn't easy growing up. You know, it Mm -hmm. wasn't, we weren't in the best of circumstances. Like I said, it was a small little apartment. It wasn't the best neighborhood, you know, circumstances could be tough. Uh, but one mm-hmm. thing that my dad always told me, my dad's an educator, um, is he always told me, you know, if you if you work hard um, and you get good grades, he said, you you can change your life. You can you can mm-hmm. control your future. Right. And he said they can take your car. They can take your house. They can take your job, but they can't take what's up here. They can't take your education. Um, and that just stuck with me as a kid. And, you know, so I was I was always applying myself growing up. I took that with me pretty much through most of school. The, the sort of defining moment when people ask me, you know, how did you accomplish what, what you accomplished, right? Mm-hmm. Is the defining moment for me actually was, you know, generally doing well because I believed you were supposed to, right? Because mom and dad told mm-hmm. me you were supposed to. And it it only switched. I only flipped the switch in my head where I started doing it for me, which I always tell people, you you have to believe it. You have to want it, right? It has to come from you. That only happened when I actually I switched schools and I got to the the middle school now um, and it was a magnet school. So they talked about, you know, this is where the best meets the best. There was sort of a culture of excellence and 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 apply and applying yourself to be a leader. 
so that that seventh grade year when I first got there, that just kind of stuck with me. It was like, wow, this is where you go to apply yourself. And I did very well. And everybody just kind of looked at me as like the runaway valedictorian for eighth grade, right? And it's like we, we were still like maybe midway through seventh grade. And that's that's how well I was doing. And, um, you know, as, as these things tend to do, it, it, um, it kind of got to my head a bit. And sure enough, we started eighth grade and I just thought I had it in the bag, right? And I just thought valedictorian, like this is my year. Um, but what actually ended up happening was I started slacking. Um, and I, I thought that it just kind of came naturally to me. So I didn't have to apply myself. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, people find it hard to believe now, but I, I was slacking off my homework, you know, messing around, just not, not doing what I was mm-hmm. supposed to do. And um, sure enough, what ends up happening that year is uh, we get to the spring when they announce who's valedictorian and it's coming on the intercom. They're making the announcement and everybody's just kind of looking at me because it's, it's obviously Jordan, right? And sure enough, they, they say valedictorian and I don't hear my name, mm. right? And everybody's just looking. There's kind of like a tension in the room. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay. <laughs> and, then, and then they say salutatorian and I don't hear my name. And it's like, oh, I wow. felt... I fell from first place at the end of seventh grade because I was messing around and not taking care of my business. I fell all the way down at third place, right? You don't get recognized. Mm-hmm. There is no award. And I had, to, I had to live with that. I had to very much to sort of look, look at myself in the mirror that evening. I went home and, and I had to come to terms with the fact that I wanted it. It's not that I didn't want to be valedictorian. Mm-hmm. I wanted to. I didn't put in the work. I didn't follow up and do what I was supposed to do. And so I asked myself that that evening, looking in the mirror, here I am, a 13-year-old, you know, eighth grader, right? And I, I went home and I looked myself in the mirror and I said, what type of person do I want to be in the world? Do I want to be the type of person who's okay with just being bright? I mean, I still finished mm-hmm. in third place, right? Some mm-hmm. people are like, okay, look, look, why are you even complaining, right? You did really yeah. well. But I knew I didn't do as well as I should have and could have. And so I asked myself, what type of person do I want to be? And I said, I want to be the type of person who always gives 110%. I don't want to be comfortable with just being good enough. I am going Mm -hmm. to give every inch and every bit what I have in my heart and soul to whatever I set my mind to. And I will not be the reason. My my lack of effort will never again be the reason why something doesn't happen. It it will have to come from forces beyond myself that I don't make something that I want to happen happen. What an incredible lesson to learn at a young age, I will say. And and kudos to you and and Clearly, you're mature beyond your years because at 13, to be able to even ask yourself that question, I think is, I, I mean, I just, I personally don't know a lot of 13-year-olds that you have the, the astuteness or the, or, or maybe that self-aware to ask themselves that question that, you know, they're still just. Um, and, and so, Jordan, you took, you took that mentality, that reflection that you had at a very tender age, and I would agree, obviously, with Angela, to high school. And so how did, how did that turn out? And that, that was really when things changed. I, I, I sort of viewed that, that moment, that mentality that I said in myself, I, I took it to heart um, and I never looked back. I actually would end up graduating with what at the time was the highest GPA in my high school's history. Um, I, from the very first semester of high school, pretty much through the end, uh, was, was in that, that you know, valedictorian spot because I was just, I was hungry. I had this desire um, and it wasn't, you know, people ask me, um, are you competitive, right? Like, did, did you feel like, like you mm-hmm. were offended that, that you weren't valedictorian because you thought that you were better 
than the person who was valedictorian and who was salutatorian in eighth grade? And did you feel like when you got to high school, you had to prove yourself that you were better than everybody? No, I'm not competitive in in sort of an external facing way. I'm com- I'm competitive in an internal With facing yourself. way, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So I I was holding myself to task in high school. I wasn't running a race against everybody else. I was running a race with myself of trying mm-hmm. to see, you know, how high can my GPA get? Because I, I wanted to show that I can do it for me. Right. Right. And so that was kind of the mentality I took. Thankfully I did end up being valedictorian, as I mentioned in high school and also just so fortunate. Um, I was admitted to, to Princeton, Harvard and Yale um, in my senior <laughs> year and had a, yeah, had a, had a bit of a decision to make. Um, and my parents, you know, they'll tell you now one of the most stressful moments of their lives is, uh, we finished all of our site visits. We went to see the schools and, you know, as a kid coming from Newark, right. I mean, I felt like I was in like a fairy tale of uh, visiting mm. these campuses and it was just so surreal. Um, and for a while I thought I was going to be a Princeton kid, um, because, I had done two summer programs on Princeton's campus, which were quite formative for me, and I just loved it. It was, you know, the suburban sort of fairyland and, and absolutely gorgeous. And so Princeton made a lot of sense, but then I saw Harvard, and I saw Harvard after I had seen Princeton. They were very smart in how they sequenced their, their admitted students <laughs> weekends because Harvard came last. And then I had all these whispers in my ear of, oh, you like Princeton for that reason? Well, let me tell you, Harvard's better because of this. And you like Princeton for that? Well, Harvard's got that. Um, and so I actually waited until I think maybe I had 10 minutes before the decision deadline um, to submit my final decision that I was going to go to Princeton. And my parents were in the other room wondering, like, what happens if the site crashes and you can't submit your decision? <laughs> so they, they were quite stressed. Um, but I made the decision to go to Princeton. And, and then the narrative changed. Right. So, again, now it was not as Jordan, you know, is, is he hungry enough? Is he going to apply himself? But it was now a question of just pure ability in that, you know, everybody was saying, well, you know, you were a big fish in a small pond here in this mm-hmm. little high school in Newark. But now you're right. going to go to Princeton. I mean, you're pulling the best of the best from across the world is you're going to be a small fish in a big pond. Are you ready for that? And and again, this was just sort of my mentality and my my faith in myself. Right. As I said, no, no, no. I said, those that's a false dichotomy. Right. It's not a big fish, small pond, small fish, in a big pond. I said, I'm going to be a big fish. In a big pond, <laughs> I'm gonna go. <laughs> and I don't care, you know, if if where they come from, what their background is. They may have more resources than me, and many of them did. Um, they may have, you know, just a, a a stronger sort of foundation than I have. Whatever it is, um, but they they will not outwork me, right? I will go, and I will again. I will give 110 percent to making sure that I I do what I need to do to try to be the best version of myself at a place like Princeton. And again, I took that mentality and just worked hard. It wasn't always easy, but uh, ran away with it and, and very thankfully ended up graduating Princeton, um, you know, with highest honors and was awarded a Rhodes Scholarship, which is uh, one of the most prestigious scholarships for international study in the world. Uh, you know, I was one of 100 people across the world selected for this scholarship. Wow. And, uh, you know, something I take great pride in is I was the first Rhodes Scholar in the history of the Newark Public School System. Oh, um, so, wow. That's amazing. Yeah. We, we had had one person from the city of Newark prior to me, um, but they had gone to school outside of the public school system. And so I was the first sort of home homebred, straight through the public mm-hmm. schools, uh, Rhodes Scholar in the city of Newark. And it was just such a 
such a joyous moment, joyous occasion. But that was, again, it was just my sheer, my sheer desire to not let myself down and to always apply myself. It wasn't easy, but I knew I had to be the hardest worker in the room. I don't care mm-hmm. how, what, what, how challenging it is. You, you might be more talented than me. Again, you might have a better foundation, better resources, more well-endowed. You will not outwork me. You said that uh, the uh, middle schools, uh, you know, the seventh and eighth grade, you were, it was a magnet school. Um, the the high school was that kind of a school as well. Was it a magnet school, or was it something just you know? How how did you transition from that to uh, uh, tell us a little bit about the high school itself? Because it seems like it was it was uh, a school that also, although in the public system, but something that you know, there's unfortunately there's different tiers in the public system, as you well know. Um, so tell us a little bit about how that high school prepared you for such a competitive field, you know, within the Ivy League. Yeah, so my uh, I was actually in a, a funny position because my middle school was also my high school, and so the, nice. the high school had a seventh and eighth grade component to it. So it was it was you know still that oh, same yeah. magnet school environment, um, that that idea of you know this is where the best meets the best. And then the also very important thing about my high school is um, is that it, it very much has this mentality around pay it forward. Um, so it's not only where the best meets the best, but we actually have. Uh, written on some of the walls, pay it forward. And it's this idea of, you know, trying to cultivate yourself academically and and also personally as a leader, but with the the mentality that everything you're doing, you are in some way going to give forth to others, right? You are going to live a life that that is not only inward facing for yourself, but in some way, um, you know, and I, I love the idea of, of you're giving back and paying it forward because I, I, I kind of view those differently, right? I love to give back to my community in Newark, but at the same time, I like to pay it forward to other communities and other people in need. So I think they're kind of two sides of the same coin. But that was, you know, that was that that same sort of middle school to high school environment that I was being uh, sort of cultivated in and, and, and those, those lessons that were being imbued in me. And so from, from Princeton, you went to Oxford. Exactly, right. And so the, the Rhodes Scholarship, you know, many people have heard of it um, or, or heard of a few Rhodes Scholars, uh, Rachel yeah. Maddow uh, on MSNBC. Bill, Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton. Uh, <laughs> That's kind of one of, the, one of the most famous ones, you know, people yeah. in politics keep on saying Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton. That's 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 the one that many people know of. Yeah. Um, so many people know of the scholarship. They don't know what it actually is. Um, and right. so what it is, it, it's a fully funded scholarship to study at the University of Oxford in England. And, you know, any degree that's on offer at the university is available to you. And so uh, you can study politics, you can study global governance, international relations, you can study the history of medicine. Every degree is open to you. Um, but beyond being a, a, a sort of scholarship and a, a funded degree in itself, what it is, it's a network of, of leaders who are devoted to, quote, fighting the world's fight. It truly values and, and selects a group of 100 every year individuals uh, who are devoted to somehow creating change. And, and that idea of fighting the world's fight is broadly defined. And so, you know, some people believe that they're fighting, you know, it depends on what sort of portion of the world's fight you're fighting, right? So, so for some people, it's some sort of uh, academic pursuit, right? They believe that they're they're adding to thoughtful discourse on an issue and, and critical theory. And so they pursue a path of academia. For other people, which is sort of more of my path, it's a little bit more of governance and um, sort of community work, law, 
uh, policy. For other people, it can be uh, more business. Um, so it, it's really, an, or medicine, right? We also have a number of doctors. And so, but it, it's this wonderful network of 100 people every year studying at the University of Oxford together, studying different degrees, but with that same desire, that same devotion to creating change in some way. And they obviously come from different parts of the world. Absolutely. It's a global scholarship. So we have 32 U.S. Rhodes Scholars every year. So I was one of 32 in the 2018 cohort. Um, but then the, the, other, the other scholars come from across the world, right? And, and there are different numbers from each constituency. So uh, you can get you know, 11 from Canada, four from India, eight from South Africa, um, and and the, the breadth is just amazing. You know, we have scholars from Germany. We have scholars from Australia. We have scholars from um, Zimbabwe, Zambia. I mean, it, it's it's truly just a phenomenal network. So is that something that you apply for or does your school counselor say, hey, I think you would have a good chance of qualifying for this? Like, what's the process for that? I'm just curious. It, yeah. It's it's you definitely apply for it. And it's uh, to this day, the most rigorous application process I've ever gone through. Um, but, you know, it's also mixed, right? Like most um, most of these these larger schools like a Princeton and, uh, and a Harvard, like these schools that and larger, not in not in size, but just in terms of their uh, their capacity their endowment for, for having these offices. They have fellowship offices where they staff it with individuals who are advising students on applying for these types of scholarships, whether it's a, a Rhodes scholarship or a Marshall scholarship or a Fulbright um, or a Mitchell, you know, some of these that you might have heard of. Um, and so I was very thankful that, again, I came came from Newark, and, and it's something that I'm proud of, but there also were just sort of gaps in, in information, right? And one thing that I talk about, because uh, I'm very passionate about education and sort of educational opportunity and access, is you know, you're, you're running a race from, from a very early age, and you're, you know, some people are getting way further ahead in that race of experience and, and exposure than others and information and knowledge. Uh, than others as they get there. So that when you actually finally arrive at Princeton, you're not on the same stepping stone of, of where, where you're coming from. And so that was one thing, just one disadvantage that I had is I had never heard of fellowships of any kind, right? I didn't really know what a Rhodes Scholarship was. I didn't know what a Fulbright was. And I was very thankful that I, I had done well my first year at Princeton so that it was actually somebody from the fellowships office who kind of tapped me on the shoulder and said, I think that you should apply to uh, what at the time was was um, a fellowship for freshmen. It was called the Fulbright U.S. U.K. Summer Institute, and it was going to fund five weeks of study at a university in England and an exposure to a critical topic. And so they told me, you know, you're doing really well academically. You, you've been in all these awesome extracurriculars. I think you should apply for this fellowship. And, and then, of course, right, there's a whole question of like, well, what is a fellowship? What is this Fulbright thing? I didn't know any of that stuff. Right. Again, it's that I was I, I was I was a little bit further behind in the race of just knowing what to do when you get to a place like a Princeton. Um, but thankfully, um, they, they, they guided me. They advised me. And I ended up being accepted to that that Fulbright Summer Institute. And that was kind of my first exposure to just like what these fellowships are, um, what it was like to study abroad. You know, it was kind of my first major experience out of the country. I had young age, I'd gone to Portugal with my family, but this was kind of like my first time on my own being exposed to the UK. So I credit that 
that exposure to that Fulbright program for why I would then apply to the Rhodes, but also just, you know, like you mentioned, the fellowship's office is so much of the reason why I applied to the Rhodes, because I just didn't know that's Mm -hmm. what a person does, you know? Right. That's actually a great point to bring up. And I think something that we can address in a, in actually a whole series of other webinars, which is educational processes in terms of how do you apply for a scholarship? What is a fellowship and how do you apply for that? And what are the different opportunities available? And what is financial aid and what are the different options? I mean, there's so many things when it comes to going to university that I think there's still a lot of questions in our community, you know, because there, I think we still have a lot of first generation going to college, right? The parents didn't go to college or, you know, things like that. So um, I think that's it's a great point that you raise up that um, you just didn't know. And, and maybe that's something that we can work on on fixing, you know, yeah. letting more yeah. people know. I, I wanted to ask you that, if we should just take a couple of minutes on that, uh, Angela, which is, Jordan, I mean, going to Princeton is, is in itself an experience, obviously. But it's, uh, I think that w- how would you rate going to Princeton but also these other opportunities that came about from going to Princeton. And I think students can get them from other universities as well. Obviously, obviously, you know, Ivy League is a different uh, to a class of its own, but even some of the state colleges and some of the uh, university systems throughout any public uh, or private university throughout the United States, how much of your academic and, and graduating from Princeton and, of course, the, 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 the Rhodes Scholar, but how much of this was just what you did in a classroom versus these opportunities that took you because sometimes as Americans, one of our lacking is that we think, okay, well, we get a, you know, you get a degree from a four-year college and boom, I got that certificate. I have that piece of paper and now I can do whatever, but it's not only no longer the piece of paper. It's also where you get it. And it's also the experiences that you get uh, by going to study abroad, whether it's even just one simple six week stint in Portugal or Brazil or, or the UK or anywhere else. How much of these things that you did uh, that, you know, going to Princeton afforded you have shaped who you are today? Uh, You know, I I owe so much to my experience at Princeton. And that's a great point that you mentioned is, is it's so much of, you know, I love that you use the word experience, right? Because it's not just the degree, right? I, I studied public and international affairs, but so much of what Princeton did to shape me, and it shaped my mind in so many ways, just the way that I view the world. You know, I loved all of the information that that I was consuming in the classroom, and and I've always been that person who just wanted to learn more. And and I felt like with every class that I took, there was just a whole new world that was opening to me. And so, you know, obviously the quality of instruction and and just academic offerings at Princeton was phenomenal. But so much of it was the entire experience, right? It was the the conversations with the other students, making friends with, you know, Princeton in itself is a very international place. So, you know, coming from a place like Newark, where my exposure had largely been Portuguese and then African-American Latino, to then I get to Princeton, it's like all of a sudden, you know, I'm meeting friends from Rwanda, I'm meeting friends from uh, Zimbabwe, from from China, from Australia, and, and just getting a chance to know them and 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 understanding you know, how they viewed the world and how it was different from me. And, and even domestically, right? Like meeting people from Wyoming or meeting people from Texas. Um, you know, one of my most developmental ex- experiences at Princeton was my freshman year. My roommate uh, was an Asian American from San Francisco. 
And so, you know, here he is coming from the entirely opposite coast um, and just growing up in a much different context. You know, he's very religious, a little conservative, whereas I was I was, uh, you know, quite liberal. Uh, And so it was just such a different experience. And we had to learn how to engage with each other and share space, share, share very close, intimate living space as roommates, despite coming from such different backgrounds and viewing the world differently, right? It's like, how do you, how do you, how do you see somebody and, and how do you understand them and how do you engage them in ways that are respectful, but then also learn from them, right? I learned a lot from my roommate and he shaped my views in ways that were within reason, right? Didn't completely, didn't make me a conservative, but, but he allowed me to, when, when in reason say, wow, okay, I, I see why you believe that you have a good point. So it was the it was the the breadth of of the students that I was being exposed to, just the nature of the students. Um, but then to your point, it's the it's the opportunity, right? These these universities like Princeton, like Harvard, um, and you know, it's not only the Ivy League, right? I'm very careful not to be elitist in that. There are many schools outside of the Ivy League that that also just do phenomenal things for their students, whether you know it's a Georgetown. Um, or it's a, uh, University of California, Berkeley, right? I mean, just these, it's these schools that have the resources and the opportunities and the networks to expose you to so much. So I think about after that freshman year where I studied at the University of Bristol in England, and that was just an eye-opening experience that next year, because of the resources available at Princeton and the network of Princeton, I, uh, from June to July, so eight weeks, did an internship at a law firm in Lisbon, Portugal. Um, you know, was was uh, working in Portuguese, living day to day in Portugal, um, and took the opportunity to see Portugal. Right, every every weekend I was in a different place. I visited. I saw more of Portugal than my grandparents have seen in their time living there. I mean, you know, from Nazaré to Alcavaça to Batalha to all Very I cool. Mean, I, saw, I saw it all um, and loved it. And then. Um, Hopped on a plane immediately after being in Portugal. To your point, you mentioned Brazil. I was volunteering um, at the 2016 Rio Olympics, and I was oh, wow. I was engaging in humanitarian service projects in the favela neighborhood. So we were painting murals, um, we were planning gardens, but then we had a partnership with the uh, International Olympic Committee where they would give us extra tickets. When, you know, they had all these events going on, rugby, ping pong, they wouldn't sell them all. And so all the extras they would give to these organizations like ours, where we can take the children from the favelas to go see the games um, and expose them to that. And so, but obviously we were seeing them ourselves too, right? So it's kind of a cool word. Um, But right, that was what Princeton offered. And then the next summer I was at, um, this was the, you know, Trump gets elected that fall in 2016. Um, So then that summer of 2017, I was actually interning at the Department of Education uh, through this scholarship that I had won through Princeton. It was called the Scholars in the Nation Service Initiative, uh, which uh, gives you a summer internship opportunity at a government agency of your choice. So, you know, kind of a funny thing here is I, I get that scholarship in October and Trump wins in November. So we, we, we all applied to the scholarship, not knowing which president we were going to be under and, and um, you know, just, just, just wanting to serve and just wanting to learn. So that summer in itself was one of the most hectic, but just so wonderful developmental learning opportunities of my life. And all of that, right, is, is that's Princeton's opportunity network um, that, that, that other schools 
you know, some of them can offer, but not all can. And so I always tell people you in so much of why I, I encourage you to always challenge yourself, apply to these Ivy Leagues and these these other phenomenal schools outside of the Ivy League, mm-hmm. rather than just saying, oh, it's just a degree is because it's it's not you're going to get a degree. And that's phenomenal. And I, I'm just glad that people are applying to college and, and want a degree. But, you know, what's what what concerns me and one thing that I'm always so passionate about when I when I go back and I talk to students in Newark is those students who can get into the to the to the top schools but don't even apply because they don't um you know they don't believe that they're good enough right mm-hmm. or or they're worried about you know um not being able to perform when they get there and that's something it's called undermatching it's a trend where students who typically could get into a school based on their uh, GPA SATs etc do not even apply and they apply to you know mm-hmm. I, I hate to use the term lesser because i just don't sure. view schools sure. that way but they at least as it's ranked they apply to a lower ranked school and simply because you know again they 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 didn't they didn't feel that they would fit in or they were worried mm-hmm. that they could get rejected with encourage people you have to you have to believe in yourself you have to apply because it's a whole experience it's an opportunity yeah. network that you get at these schools yeah. so jordan i have a direct experience with exactly what you talked about in high school my my counselor basically said you don't really have a good gpa so just apply to state your local state school i mean she actually discouraged me from applying to other schools well, I didn't listen to her and I applied to a bunch of other schools. I got in everywhere I applied and I ended up going nice. to uh, University of San Francisco and it was the best experience of my life. So yeah. um, you bring up a, an excellent point and I, I want to be cognizant of time. We've got about 15 minutes left, if that. Um, and um, Angela, I, I just, I just want to mention yeah, that it's ahead. interesting that, that it still applies to all different generations because, you know, kind of we're, we're a little bit different uh, generation, obviously, from, uh, you know, there's a big difference between your age and mine. It's almost 62 and Angela's kind of in the middle there. Um, and it, but it's gone. It's, I thought it would be gone with my generation because when I went to high school, I mm-hmm. wanted to go to college. And this counselor told me that since I was in rural county in California, that, and I could talk, you know, so um, that I should maybe consider going into selling hay. Literally, that's what the counselor said, wow. you, should be, you should be a hay salesman because there's lots of Portuguese in the agricultural and dairy industry. And since you wow. can speak both languages, you shouldn't be an educator. You should be a, a hay salesman, which is okay. I mean, a couple of cousins actually are and are probably more successful than I am <laughs> financially. Um, but uh, I, 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 well, like Angela said, um, I think we are cognizant of time. So, and, and, and you're wonderful. We could just ask you a question. You go for 20 minutes, your, 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 your dream come true yeah. to anybody in interviews. But um, uh, I think what Angela wanted to go through was to go into is what your your work right now in Newark. So uh, basically, Angela. Yeah, well, that. But then, I mean, I I I, um, I feel it's a, it's actually even more important to talk about your perspective on what's happening in our country today and, and the world, really, um, given not only the pandemic, which has affected the economy, and then of course we have the the social justice you know, tensions and issues that, that have been raised. So, you know, pulling from all of your experience, having gone from a, a predominantly Portuguese school to a predominantly uh, African-American school, and then getting into the Ivy Leagues and all of your, and you have become a citizen of the world, essentially, right? <laughs> Would love to, what's your thought on what's happening now? And, and is there a message you have for the Portuguese community on 
how do we move forward and how do we, you know, start to really have these tough conversations and address these issues? Yeah, I mean, we are living in in truly an unprecedented time. I mean, we've we've mm-hmm. seen um, financial crises, we've seen pandemics. You know, we we keep looking toward the 1918 uh, Spanish flu at, for lessons on how to navigate this moment, and we've seen um, civil unrest around racial injustice and systemic racism. But 2020 just said, okay take all of those and we're just going to throw it all at you, right? It's like, okay, you know, hold my beer, right? Take this. Mm -hmm. So it it truly is an incredible moment. Um, It's visceral uh, in every conversation with somebody, you know, there's, there's some way that it comes up, right? It's, you can't avoid it. And I think that is, it's a beautiful thing. Um, I think it's, um, it's an exhausting thing. You know, I, you, you, it's almost, it almost feels like you can't unplug from it, no matter, mm-hmm. you know, what the notifications are on your phone, or you go on to Facebook, you go on to Instagram, you go on to Twitter, you know, I was talking to somebody recently, and they said, I used to love Instagram, because it was just pictures, and it was friendly, and it was like a fairy tale escape. And now it's like, even the pictures are political. Um, you yeah. know, but I, I think it's beautiful, if I'm being honest, because it forces us for, you know, there is for, for, there, there's always um, there's always a need for balance. So I hope that people are you know making time for self care and unplugging and, and truly making time to refresh when they need that space and that energy recharge. Um, but I also love that it is it this is a moment when we are being forced to grapple with these issues and we can't mm-hmm. avoid them anymore. Right? You can't you can't just say oh that's that person's issue anymore. You can't just say oh right. well Black Lives Matter that that's Black people's issue anymore. Right? It's like well you need you need to take a stance. You need to decide how you feel about this. Um, and, and again, you know, I, I go back to my freshman year with that that individual, my roommate, is like you you need to at least even if you disagree with with some of the the stances that are being taken on everything that's happening now, at least try to understand what's happening happening now and, and, and formulate an opinion on it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, I think one of the most powerful things you can do is just figure out where you lie, because that's where action stems from. You first need to have thoughts and opinions and sensibilities and values on something to then take action based on that. And Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's so powerful how we see that mobilization, that galvanization of action around so many different things right now. Um, you know, when we do see people taking very strong stances around trying to equalize opportunity, uh, trying to dismantle systems of oppression and injustice. Um, and again, I say that not only in the context of Black Lives Matter, but we see it extending, right? We see now um, there's been a sort of recent string of anti-Semitic messages by certain mm-hmm. celebrities that have been very rightly criticized and condemned, right? And I just love that there's a certain uh, level of solidarity right now across movements that we haven't always seen. Uh, That being said, you know, I'm talking now about some of these sort of identity, uh, sort of racial civil unrest issues, but there is a pandemic going on. And and Mm -hmm. that I'm a little less uh, sort of optimistic or or peachy in how I view it. I love the progress that's being fought on racial fronts right now um, and ethnic fronts. Um, I'm a little concerned by what we see happening with the pandemic response for a number of reasons, right? I mean, the U.S. now has become the the only developed nation that is still uh, that is still rising in cases, and and our our mortality rate is getting out of control. There is a lack of sort of central coordination around how to proceed from here. 
um, that that concerns me. It, it breaks my heart to see how even something like mask wearing has become a political mm-hmm. statement mm-hmm. Uh, in many ways when you would hope that it would kind of just be based on the science, something that we yeah. can agree. We're, we're helping That's each helpful. other, right? Yeah. So we're kind of we're doing this to save each other's lives. You know, we're doing it. uh, You know, you love your family. Well, we'll wear wear a mask because you would hope that somebody else would wear a mask to help your family as well. Um, And I, you know, again, I'm 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 sort of showing my own politics on the pandemic's response right now and and how I'm uh, how I'm talking about it. But um, one thing that I do believe is that you know we we as a people. And, and as a country, which is why as much as I may criticize certain aspects of this country, and I, I really devoted my life to trying to uh, improve conditions for those who have been left behind in many ways, I still love this country, is because there is a spirit, um, there is a, a sort of uh, a tendency to, over time, uh, try to grapple with these difficult things and to, and to push forward. And so I see that happening now on the racial front. We still have a long way to go. I'm a little concerned by how it's happening on the pandemic front, but I know we're going to get through it. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I simply hope that we'll get through it and we'll snap into our senses um, sooner rather than later so that we don't have any more unnecessary people dying at the hands of the terrible virus. Um, but, you know, as somebody who's been working on the response in Newark and in New Jersey, I can tell you I'm just inspired every day. Uh, by the spirit of people mobilizing around trying to mm. combat this thing, whether it's frontline health workers, you know, people just day and night um, sacrificing so much to be in the hospitals or to go and, you know, uh, first first on the scene EMTs and things like that uh, to people who are, you know, sort of more in my position, uh, uh, advising cities and working with cities on setting up testing sites and volunteering their time around contact tracing and things like that. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely inspiring seeing people just work day and night like crazy out of the goodness mm-hmm. of their hearts. So that that's one thing that I am very rosy and very optimistic on is it's shown me again, I believe strongly in just people. I just, I love people because people, people show me time and time again that we, we are beautiful in so many ways. And I, I see that happening now with the pandemic. Do you think that, um, I mean, one of the concerns with the pandemic also, uh, some of the things that you mentioned about uh, racial injustice, we're seeing it in the pandemic and the number of people of color that are being uh, much more affected by the pandemic. And it's because of the structures that we've put in place in society. Absolutely. And, and you know, you see the way that uh, the disparities for for. Uh, so many years in in health and in education and et cetera that mm-hmm. that have have plagued you know black and Latino groups. We now see them all compounded in in the way that the pandemic is is killing those those individuals at disproportionate rates. So um, it's just another way in which all of this gets linked together. They're, they're not separate. The financial crisis right now is very much to be. Uh, health crisis and the racial injustice, civil unrest is very much linked to to both of those as well. And and as a Portuguese American, you know, Portuguese African American, you have all the 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 different ethnicities and and uh, and uh, these different experiences. You know, sometimes we in the Portuguese community nationally, not just you know here in California or there in in, in, in New Jersey or or, but throughout the United the U.S. When there's when, in large pockets of Portuguese Americans, you know, California, uh, Newark, uh, New York, and of course the New England states. Sometimes we hear, well, you know, what's going on in the African American community, whether it be with Black Lives Matter or other issues as well, um, or what we hear, you know, in with immigration in the uh, Hispanic community as well, in the Latinx community. So we hear we hear this, and sometimes we say, well, it's not our issue, you know, it's really yeah. not us. But you've you've said you've touched on a topic there that 
there are these uh, different uh, communities that are coming forth that it may not directly affect them, but it does indirectly affect. And part of it, because we are American, you know, whether we're a Portuguese background or African background or where you, or you're, you know, of Latin background, where there's something that bonds us together, which being, you know, the American experience. So how do you feel and what would you say to folks who say, well, this is not really a Portuguese state, so let's not even talk about this. Uh, you know, I, I tell them it is right, and and you know, there's that that classic uh, sort of tale where it's like they they came for for the Jewish, and and it wasn't me, so I stayed silent. And they came for the Latinx, mm-hmm. and it wasn't me, so I stayed silent. Um, and then they came for me, but there was nobody else to help. Nobody left, yeah. Right, and and so right, there's nobody left. Um, and so I I truly believe that 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 statement, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere because it's we've seen it happen uh particularly in the last four years right it's it's an issue by issue case so so we thought that very early on it was going to be attacks on immigrants uh, on immigration and immigrants and it was and then it became an attack on on feminist issues and on women's rights and then it became an attack on black lives and so it's you know marginalized groups and and individuals fighting for access and opportunity in in one way or another There's there's a need for solidarity because we are all fighting for for that same ideal of just wanting to be at the table on equal footing. And whether your angle of, of how you view your path to being on equal is different. So perhaps you know Portuguese Americans aren't being targeted disproportionately by police, right? That's that sort of uh, African Americans sort of angles to how we get on equal footing. Um, Portuguese Americans have their own set of of issues and and uh, social causes that they're passionate about and things that mm. we need to grapple with. We can only hope that we all sort of link arm helping each other get there, right? Whatever it is that you need, I'm going to lend a hand. That may not be what I need, but I trust that I'll lend a hand to you and you'll lend a hand to me on what I need. Um, and, you know, and it resonates deeply with me because I kind of am on both sides. I am Portuguese American and black mm-hmm. American. So, you know, I can't avoid I can't avoid what's happening. And, and I always talk, um, you know, very passionately about one thing we need to recognize in the Portuguese community is we're not all just one sort of, uh, you know, ethnic group of people. Right. There are yeah. interracial people like me. And what does it mean to say, well, that's not my issue? Well, does that mean that mm-hmm. I'm not a valued member of the community and that you don't care mm-hmm. about the causes that that affect me and who I am? Right. And so it's one thing is, is I love I love our Portuguese community, but I do think that there is almost a sort of um, uh, homogenization in our minds sometimes yeah. of what it means to be Portuguese American. And we almost kind of forget like that pan lucifone group, right? Like what about like mixed Brazilian uh, Portuguese people who tend to have darker skin and may be subject to injustice or the African nations, right? Maybe mixed with our Portuguese uh, mm. groups and right. And then we're subject to all sorts of injustice. So I, I always encourage Portuguese to kind of step out of that homogenize, like this is what a Portuguese American yes. is and just recognize that there's a, there's a lot of us out there like me who feel very strongly Portuguese American, but don't look like the others. Uh, well, and on that, on that note, I think we could actually have another webinar discussion just on that topic. And so perhaps we'll have you back Jordan, as well as a, a couple other guests to, to explore that further, because I, you are absolutely right. And I think it's a really I, important uh, yeah. topic to address. I think um, so. Yeah. Uh, and unfortunately we've reached our time. We've, gone through almost a whole hour and this has been phenomenal. Jordan, I know that we're going to be working together in the future. So hopefully this is just the first time that uh, our members and our community will be seeing you and hearing from you. And we're very excited to be doing that. Um, thanks everybody for, for watching. Thanks for those who are listening on the podcast. 
And if you are listening on the podcast, please hit subscribe if you haven't already. Share the podcast with friends and family. It's a it's free. It's a resource. It's a conversation uh, that needs to be had, and we need to have as many people engaged in this conversation as possible. So please do that. And, and write us a review. If you have a, a minute or two, take time to write us a review on iTunes. That will help more people uh, find this podcast. And so just thank you, Jordan, so much for your time. This has been a really awesome conversation. Yeah. I really, thank, you, really Andrew, appreciate thank you. Denise. If I can just add, uh, thanks Jordan. And thanks for, thanks for being inspiring. Um, mm-hmm. It is. Yes. Um, we, 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 sometimes we look forward and, and when we get to my age, we become a little bit cynical, and, um, <laughs> and 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 there's a little bit, and, th- and there's some there's some virtues in, in a little bit of yeah. cynicism. Uh, however, uh, you know, to to see uh, someone, um, you know, obviously as intelligent you are, uh, but also as caring and empathetic, and that's some of the things that sometimes we lack in the in the, wor- age, in the world frankly. today, in the world today, which is empathy, empathy. And so, yeah. thanks, thanks for the wise words, thanks for the inspiration, but above all, thanks for being who you are. Thank you. Thank I, you. I appreciate the kind words and, you know, so thankful to, to be on this podcast and look forward to working with both of you on a number of issues moving forward. Thank you. Appreciate Excellent. it. Excellent. All right, everybody. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you so much. Take Thank care. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Politicus, the official podcast of Palcus, the Portuguese American Leadership Council of the United States. Palcus is the premier national organization representing the interests of the Portuguese American community at large. To learn more about Palkus and how to become a member or to make a donation, visit www.palkus.org. To submit feedback or suggestions about the podcast, email us at palkus at palkus.org. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of the show are not endorsed by Palkus. Politicus is made possible through the support of the Luso-American Development Foundation.